Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. This is a podcast that has been in the works for a very long time, like a year. I think it's been a year. Maybe maybe not quite a year, but very close to a year. Um, we got together for one other podcast, but that was a work podcast. Uh, this one, though, we, we were going to try and do it back during hunting season when I drove through uh, his neck of the woods. And uh, then I think we were going to try and get together again um, this earlier this spring i was kind of kicking around the idea of doing a shed hunt down that way and that never happened and then during our uh turkey trip that we just took this past weekend we were, i was going to try and get together but then ryan was out of town and we have not been able to line anything up so we even though we only live i don't know maybe an hour 45 from each other um we had to meet this way we had to we had to jump on the old google meet and record this one but we will get that live podcast ryan we, we will make it happen brother um i'm looking forward to it man anytime we can uh, both navigate our hectic schedules a little on a clearer path that's right that's right <laughs> we uh we did get to hang out though a little bit at the deer classic back in march and uh Ryan is actually, that's, that's the place where I met him. Um, I remember seeing, uh, so I guess I should fully introduce you. His name isn't just Ryan. It's Ryan Bryson from Bryson, uh, land management. Is that, is that the name of your business? Uh, Bryson wildlife and land wildlife management. Yep. and man, land management. Okay. That's right. Yes, sir. And, uh, I remember seeing your business advertised on trophy bucks of Iowa, man, probably, would you have been on there as early as like 2017, 2018, something like that? That's probably, yeah, I think I officially, if you want to say, went into business. I think you want to call that with Bryson Wildlife in probably 2017. Okay. So, yeah, I've been about, I think this is year seven. So. Wow, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I remember. I remember you being advertised on there. And it always just kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And then uh, fast forward to the 2022 Deer Classic. Um, I'm walking around with Jonas at the show. It's our first time going to the Classic. And I walk by, and here's this real friendly guy with this giant uh, uh, buck on his uh, table and uh, some blaze orange koozies. He was super nice to Jonas, gave him a koozie. And... uh, we just kind of hit it off. We enjoyed talking for a little bit. We found that we had some common ground because I, if I remember correctly, uh, you're a first gen hunter as well, right? Yeah. Um, you know, my family, uh, didn't, I would say I'm the first probably active hunter in my family. You know, dad grew up in the seventies and eighties, you know, on the farm, you know, mm-hmm. they, they hunted, but you know, hunting then was more just going out, you know, pheasant hunting when we still had a, abundance of pheasants in the areas and uh, not not necessarily to the what we do today okay now that's super interesting to me right there because that is the era that i have like i haven't been able to piece all of that era of hunting in iowa together 
I mean, I know there's there were pheasants and definitely more pheasants than, in fact, that would have been the, you know, prime time for pheasant hunting in Iowa would have been during those years. And, you know, mm-hmm. all the way up through really the early 2000s, it was very good in Iowa. Um, uh, but uh, as far as deer go, does your dad ever – you ever talk about like deer hunting back in the seventies and eighties? Man, if he if he did, I probably wasn't paying attention to that story. I was, I don't know. Um, no, I think he, uh, <laughs> I think he might have went a couple times as a kid. You know, just uh, I I tell you, my dad's probably the biggest outdoor story is um, when he was a young young guy growing up and young boy. Uh, they gave him a, they were going out on a fishing trip and he had to stay back on the dock and they put a piece of cheese on a hook. <laughs> and I guess the story goes, he was the only one that caught a fish that day. The guys went out on the boat, spent and the boat didn't catch anything. And he was the only one that caught a fish. So. <laughs> but no, uh, I mean, my, my father and my family, you know, my, I have an uncle that did a lot of, a lot more hunting, did some okay. waterfowl and deer hunting and stuff growing up. Um, so I've had the chance to do a little bit of hunting with him. As you know, as as I've progressed through age and spent a lot of time fishing, fishing with them, but no, as, far as uh, hunting wise, no one I that I can recall in my close generations has really been a. I, guess, I don't want to say it's serious, but does it as much as I do. Sure, sure. Well, and you know what? What's so interesting too, going back to that that time frame, um, is deer in Iowa were not yet like you know something you saw very much. Um, they were, they were still very much, uh, recovering a population here in the state that went down to zero, you know, back in the 1900s or, you know, 1910s, 19 teens, something like that. And then, uh, they brought in more deer, um, from surrounding states and repopulated Iowa. Um, and so... You know, during that era, I asked my grandpa all the time, and he can't, he can't remember. He's not a he did a little bit of pheasant hunting uh, growing up, but he lived on the same farm for. Uh, he just moved away from the farm uh, a couple years ago, so that we could move into the house, and so he lived here for eighty four years. And so, you know, just being able to see the same piece of ground for that long, you know, it's just an interesting. Yeah, yeah, just to see that interesting perspective. But he couldn't remember when when exactly he started to see deer showing up. But it would have been, you know, probably 70s, 80s timeline when people started being able to hunt them again, I think, probably more so the 80s. Um, and then, of course, in the 90s, things really started taking off in, in Iowa. And then, of course, in the early 2000s was probably, from, from what I hear, I don't know, maybe you've heard something different, Ryan, but I've heard that <laughs> early – early 2000s was like the prime time for Iowa whitetails. Have you heard that? You know, I, I get a, I t- try to take the opportunity to dig through every once in a while, some old magazine knowledge, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, seeing some of those old guys and it, there does seem to be a, a, there seems to be a lot of deer, big deer that were killed in the early 2000s. But, you know, I think there was, I think there was a lot less, I don't want to say a lot less hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there was less guys as serious about bow hunting as there is today. And, you yeah. know, I think that's kind of when bow hunting really kind of came on the scene. If, I, mean, I could be wrong with that. But. No, you're probably right because that would have – so Fred Bear would have already happened. 
Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And and I imagine, I mean, obviously neither of us were alive then, but I imagine America probably saw a little bump during his sure. era. But then, you know, sure. you start looking at the 90s, that's when you got Bill Jordan and, you know, Real Tree Monster Bucks and the Drury's and some of those like godfathers of hunting entertainment, you know, even in some cases being on like Saturday morning network TV or something, you know, um, I heard recently that ESPN used to run some hunting shows and, um, you know, people start seeing it and, and, you know, on their TV, I imagine that probably got people a little excited about, you know, uh, bow hunting, like you said. And then, but also, yeah, too, they're, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, there definitely seemed to be a, uh, I guess, a, a transformation of the sport. Uh, I'd say, like, almost generationally, mm-hmm. um, where it just kind of made a uh, a leap, if you were to say. You know, I think uh, people started taking it a little more competitively, possibly. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's interesting just to look back on it and see the growth of the sport over, over the, especially the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. And things kind of stayed... You know, I mean, you picked up a lot more TV shows, but things kind of stayed the same, I'd say, you know, from that mid-90s to, um, you know, probably 20, late 20-teens. Things kind of stayed, you know, just like TV was, if you wanted to watch hunting, you really went to TV to do so. But also at that same time, uh, YouTube was really starting to gain traction and, and I was just talking with a friend of mine recently who knows a lot about how the media breakdown goes. And he was talking about basically we're in this big transition period right now for hunting media um, where, and not just hunting, it's everything, you know, where people, mm-hmm. less people are viewing things on like, you know, cable TV and they're instead using some kind of streaming app. And, you know, show so many shows are shot on YouTube with cell phone, you know, because cell phones are so capable now with their cameras. They got 4K cameras, you know, it's, it's, it's insane how it's evolving again. And, you know, I almost think like you could say that that a similar bump has probably happened again. I mean, I, in a way I'm part of that bump, you know, where it's just so much, that content is so much more accessible and you see these people that you can kind of grow to admire in the in the mm-hmm. space, and you're like, yeah, I like the way that guy does things. You know, I think he's uh, or that or that lady does things. You know, they they seem like a really respectful, you know, ethical, thoughtful hunter with a conservation mindset. You know, and what do you know? They bow hunt, so maybe I should do it too. You know, and it's kind of I think we're kind of seeing that again. But then the other thing, which we're eventually going to get to this in our conversation, you and I are both we both work within the conservation uh, business. And uh, that's really how we've become friends. And, you know, we share a mutual friend that we're both good friends with. That'd be my coworker, Nicholas. Um, when we look at how Iowa has changed through time, we've lost a lot of habitat in the course of those years too. So now I think you, you hear more of this talk out in the, you know, out in space, I guess you could say, of how hunting's getting more crowded. And uh, I think if that's happening in Iowa, which 
I guess I haven't really felt it that much here in Iowa. Um, I know guys do out west. But if people are really feeling it here in Iowa, it's probably because people are losing their spots to hunt because habitat's going away. And so you don't have habitat, well, you don't have a spot to hunt. And uh, so I think that that's, you know, that's probably been part of it too. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, you know, I would. I would say we're at a very interesting period in time where, you you know, you look at two things Iowa is known for in two different perspectives. You know, Iowa is known for some of the, one of the top producing agricultural states. So you mm-hmm. have a large push for the, you know, the value of farm ground and people wanting to add that to their portfolios. And then you also have um, people as well that are, recreational based people that are we're very fortunate to iowa is also one of the best hunting states as well for especially right. white-tailed deer so and you know cons- considering in certain parts of the state land value still being you could say somewhat cheap compared to obviously other places in the country you know they mm-hmm. see uh, iowa as a good investment so yeah the, you know i've definitely seen especially i'd say in the last three to four years a large i don't want to say a large uptick but definitely a uh, if you here put it on a graph you know we, we're seeing the climb in non-resident investments and mm-hmm whether it be farm ground or you call it farm ground or farm ground is going to turn into recreational ground or vice versa, just a lot of added interest in what Iowa has to offer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's well said. That's a good point. And, you know, something that's kind of been tossed around a little bit is that non-resident element, you know, being a non-resident landowner here in Iowa, should that allow somebody to, you know, get an automatic tag drawn for whitetail hunting every year and uh um i think i think if that happens so like it's it's a strange thing for me so my dad he lives in illinois but owns farm ground in iowa so if he wants to you know say if he wanted to draw now it's a little bit different with like late muzzleloader i think um i think I think any non-resident can pretty much draw a non or a uh, non-resident, uh, you know, either sex, uh, late muzzleloader tag. I think there is tag. a special season, or yeah, or like a holiday. Yeah, yeah. There's that holiday like season too. But, years past. Yeah, yeah. But I think that one's antlerless only, maybe. But but I think if you want a buck tag, you know you got to, you got to apply for it and you got to, and especially if you want to hunt like archery during the rut, or you maybe you want to get that early muzzleloader tag. Um, it, it's like a four year wait. And, um, you know, even if you own the ground. And so I think if that goes away, I mean, like, that's a good thing for people like my dad, you know, if he wanted to hunt, mm-hmm. but sure. But, that you can also see the other side of that, like just outside of my own family. Well, what's that mean now for the number of people buying up ground in Iowa that do not live in Iowa and, uh, you know, filling tags here and, and everything else, you know, that's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that makes it kind of hard to, to know how to feel about that. But you bring up a good point there as far as, you know, how that's affected land values and, and everything else. So yeah, it's a, we're, we're definitely in a unique time for sure. And 
I think we're in a unique time for agriculture when you look at how um, things are, how, how farming is done now, you know, uh, uh, and what's coming very soon with, with, um, you know, autonomous equipment and so forth. It, it could be very interesting to see how, you know, the land is used 20 years from now. You know, if we're having another podcast conversation 20 years from now, we might really be talking about some funky stuff without farming's done, but we're, we're we're kind of at a crossroads, you know, so it'll be interesting to see, but you know, speaking of conservation and habitat and everything else, you and I, um, here's another reason why we enjoy uh, hanging out and talking. Um, we both planted some trees over the weekend. <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we, we took advantage of our uh, day off to go do more work. So uh, you planted way more trees than I did. I only planted uh, six uh, yesterday. But you planted like, how many did you plant? Like 100? Uh, a few more than that. We planted, uh, just a little over 3,200 trees. (laughs) Um, yeah. So that was, that was a, uh, that was actually, I think there's a large, the largest or the second largest single tree planting project I've done in one day. So that was, there, there was a few planted that day. Yeah. So essentially you're, you're, you guys were trying to establish a forest eventually <laughs> uh i hope one day i can enjoy the shade of some of the trees that we're planting but we'll, we'll, we'll find out yeah yeah what what species were they oh man there was uh, a lot of a mixed variety of oaks we had a lot of walnuts we planted some northern pecans some kentucky coffee trees uh, eastern red cedars. We kind of did some different habitat structures than the tree planting as far as um, building something similar to some shelter belts and doing some different oh, sorts nice. of uh, plum, plum thickets. And, uh, pretty much a lot of just all natives to Iowa trees tried to go in and uh, reestablish it. some new plantings. Love it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as far as I mean, you got to be careful with how you're planting those because, you know, oaks are a real slow grower, whereas, like, you know, a maple will grow a, you know, if it's getting enough water, it'll grow like a foot a day, it seems. So you kind of have to, oh, yeah. you have to kind of, um, you know, space those out accordingly so you don't shade out your high value trees. But also, you know, you want some of those fast growers in there because you want to be able to, enjoy like you said enjoy the shade cast by those <laughs> by those trees eventually but no that's that's cool to hear that so did you guys plant the cedars like i assume mostly around the edges kind of like feather the edges yeah we on that project we ended up doing those on what would have been the uh inside um inside edges of the, oh, nice. the buffer strip on those so yeah it should create a nice uh Nice habitat break, a nice wind break, uh, kind of gives some new edge to the property, um, separating the CRP from the uh, the creek and uh, some different elevation changes through there. So it'll lay out pretty, it all takes, it'll lay out pretty pretty sweet here in hopefully five or ten years. Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. It looked like, a, looked like a day of really hard work, but, but like fun, you know, I, I there's so there's a there's something that struck me in a book that i read recently well i shouldn't say read i listened to it while i was working 
Uh, it's called The Worst Hard Time. Strongly recommended if uh, you enjoy reading or listening to books like I, I do. I do, yeah. The Worst Hard Time was about uh, the Dust Bowl and a little bit about the Great Depression, but more so about the Dust Bowl. Just like really hyper-focused on the people um, living in the Dust Bowl region. And um, one of the guys that helped um, kind of pull that part of the world out of the Dust Bowl, who started to really, for kind of the first time ever, that at least I've heard of, preach, you know, like soil conservation and, um, you know, like good low tillage practice and, you know, leaving, you know, some ground un untilled and the importance of doing that and protecting your soil and stuff like that. And, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. I want to look it up, but they described him as like this guy who had, who, who just loved everything about, you know, farming, working with the earth and, uh, not just in like a, you know, Oh, I love getting rich off the land mindset. Like he, he truly cared about the earth and they describe him as having these like big meaty hands that would like, uh, uh, dirt under his fingernails from working the earth all the time. And it's like, man, what a great way to be described. You know, so they, they like just said, you could tell this guy was not just out doing his job when he was, you know, when he was on his downtime, he was planting 3,200 trees somewhere. He was, you know, he was, he was doing whatever he was doing, but it was in the dirt. And, sure. and uh, you know, what a great way to be described, I think. So, I think, uh, I, I, I don't know. I think it's awesome that you did that. And, you know, I'm excited to get an update in a few years as to how things are turning out there. But man, this has been a fun conversation kind of going all over the place so far. But, uh, the other thing we want to talk about is, uh, you know, getting into deer hunting and, uh, as you said, you're more or less, I mean, you, you definitely had the help from your dad and your, your uncle, it sounds like, but the bow hunting thing, you kind of dove into that on your own, right? Yeah. I honestly probably did not start bow hunting until I was 17 or 18. I think I first picked up a bow and shot it a few times and I don't, you know, I probably didn't get actually active in the bow hunting until I was probably a freshman in college. Okay. So I'm going to guess 19 to 19 area. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually, in all reality of things, I've only been bow hunting probably 10 or 11 years now. So not, not long compared to a lot of the, a lot of everybody out there have been doing it their whole lives. Yeah. 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 Uh... Yeah, that, I think that's awesome, and to see the success that you've had, and that's what I want to talk about now is the story of your, what was it, a 192, uh, 192 inch buck um, that you shot this year? Was that the yeah, final score? Yeah, he, he was in. Yeah, I think. Gosh, I should know. <laughs> you I should know, was, man. I think, he was, <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I think he was a little over 195. If oh, I really? You went yeah, I, like one like one ninety five and some change or like one ninety six, one ninety seven? No, I, there was some eight numbers in there. It was Okay. I don't wanna say I wanna say it was like five eight. I wanna say it was like one ninety five and five eight for some reason wow. rings a bell in my head. And uh everyone's gonna think you poached this deer when I say this part. <laughs> it was in full 
velvet here in Iowa. <laughs> it was, man. I, uh, but he weren't. But he yeah. wasn't. He wasn't hunting in August or September. No, you would actually, if I remember correctly, uh, you would actually. We were texting back and forth. I think there for a couple days span, and I think you would. I think you were actually kind of on my case a little bit. I think we'd talked uh, like the week. And you were asking, you were kind of asking for like a rut report or something, if I remember correctly. Yeah, man, I haven't even, I haven't even shot my bow yet. <laughs> 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 or something of that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, like I probably owe you the credit. I think you were the one that kind of encouraged me to kind of get out there. Hey, I'll take it, man. <laughs> does that does that count? Do I, do I get to kind of like put my name in the bottom uh, corner of his uh, score? There you his, go. His scorecard, you know. Yep. No, yeah, that... yeah, I'll, I'll put the uh, text, the picture of the text messages <laughs> <up> there. <laughs> that works for me, buddy. Uh, no, I remember, I remember you saying something about him, like holy cow, and uh, then you went out and um, you shot him, but for some reason you didn't feel great about the shot, right? Um, no. So it was when he, when we got to the point where I was ready to make a shot, it was, he, he was with a doe family group that I was, I was actually to get to him. I was hunting the doe family group and, um, I was in, a, put myself in a little bit of predicament. The does did something that I didn't anticipate them doing. They went in different directions. So they were, um, the one mature mama doe, um, she was about three steps from being directly downwind of me. And of course, I mean, I, oh. we all, I, I try to be pretty cautious as far as scent protection, but man, I don't, I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it, what it is. There's, you can't fool those old mama does not a hundred percent. So yep. he had, uh, he'd come through and I had, I'd had a pretty small window that I'd pre-selected. I knew if he hit that window, I'd, I'd have an opening and, um, he, he was there, but he was angled a little, a little the wrong way from how I wanted, but it was kind of a narrow, got a, a pretty tight window to squeeze it in. And I, when I released the arrow, I saw the arrow almost definitely take a different flight pattern. So I wasn't mm. sure if I hit something. Um, but where I saw the arrow hit, I knew it was, was probably i was 90 percent sure it was a pretty fatal shot but mm -hmm. i knew i was it was pretty far back so i said well i'm not gonna go look for him until the next day so. yeah i i remember hearing that drama a little bit and it's like man if you feel like it was good generally it is good you know not not just you but i think most people because when it when it isn't good you're talking yourself into it being good you know what i mean like you're right you're yeah. like oh no I th i'm pretty sure you know and when you start doing that then it's just been my experience like yeah probably not going to be good but when you when you feel like no i'm pretty sure that was a slam dunk um usually it is it just it just seems like sure. it just seems in like this that's scenario yeah, and this scenario is definitely more of, I knew the deer was going to die. I just didn't know where and when. Mm -hmm. it was the, and all the other um, coyotes, whatever, get bumped in the night, which he ended up with. He did get bumped in the night, like I kind of anticipated he may from mm -hmm. where he was. Um, but, yeah, just all the, you start throwing all those other variables in. You, 
you know you've got a mortal shot in on a deer, but you just don't feel good about all the other variables that are out there. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, I'm kind of doing a bad job of hosting this story here, like <laughs> asking the questions, but because we're getting too far ahead of ourselves, we got to the shot. Sure. Let's kind of go back and explain the velvet side of this. So, as I said, it's a velvet buck in Iowa, which Iowa's – archery season unless you're hunting youth season you can hunt youth season that's like the last two weekends of september i think that is the only september hunting allowed in iowa everything else doesn't start until the first of october long after velvet is off all the bucks but ryan's buck still had velvet what was the reason that this buck was still carrying velvet into well into the hunting season Man, I'll be honest with you. I still to this day don't know, but I can I can kind of give you the backstory of the history I have. With the yeah, definitely help, and maybe maybe somebody out there would be able to tell me. Um, so I think it was it would have been 2021. Um, this deer, and he, he was probably already in the area, but he showed up as a three and a half year old, and I I think he was pushing 160 class three and a half year old at that point in time. Wow. So, wow. so we knew we had a really, yeah, I knew we had a really nice deer, um, that could potentially be in the area. Of course, these were early velvet pictures, but wasn't putting, you know, a lot of stock into it just cause sure. you know, deer come and go, deer come and go. And I don't, don't put any stock into them until I'm wrapping my tag around them, you know? Right. Yep. <laughs> so, um, anyway, as a three and a half year old, he kind of was, he was, uh, staying around the edges of the farm. I'd see him every once in a while. And was able to uh, kind of keep a, keep an eye on him as a three and a half year old. So we were fortunate. And then I was hunting, and it was well. It was after I'd shot my deer in 2021. I'd quit hunting, and one of the one of the guys, the partners that I hunt with, a bunch, he decided to go hunt. Um, one, he asked me to hunt one of the stands that I that's on my side. I told him to go for it, and he actually he saw a pretty good sized shed out in alfalfa. Oh, nice! And I told I, I told him I said no way, dude. I literally said that stand like two weeks ago. I would have, I would have seen it. You know, that's what was my thought process. But whatever. <laughs> and uh, hindsight, he he goes uh, up and he, he walks out there. I, I picked him up in his four wheeler, and uh, sure, sure as can be, it was uh, I think it was the right side shed to that deer, the three and a half year old. Wow. And this is like November fifteenth. And he had already shed. So he had like, already like, shed his antlers. And so is it, these were fresh, fresh dropped antlers. In November fifteenth. These were fresh. These were fresh dropped antlers. And Whoa. when we actually, he, all of a sudden, we started kind coming to. Uh, we hadn't taken a look at the cameras for a while. If I'd killed my deer and went back to work, type of deal, and just kind of let the farm go, mm-hmm. and uh, all of a sudden, kind of started getting back in the camera. All of a sudden, we started getting all these pictures of the shed buck showing up in november and you know then as we watched him progress through you know we were seeing him making it through shotgun season and then if i remember correctly he just kind of disappeared after shotgun two late muzzleloader like we never saw him again so Mm -hmm. we had if if i remember correctly we had anticipated that he was dead um you know which we were i wasn't super upset about because i didn't have a lot of history or anything with him sure um you know, which just was what it was type of deal. And then, so going into this year, 
Um, wasn't really sure of anything. I honestly wasn't putting a lot of stock into hunting really at all this last year. Had kind of a few other things going on, and then so it wasn't like I well, like I mentioned. I don't even think I'd shot my bow. I'm, I'm a terrible, not good at that. <laughs> I have the wrong mindset of uh, I know when I put my bow on the shelf. I know what I know. It was hitting when I left. So. Yeah. And if it's still on, I, 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 that's my guilt because I don't practice near as much as I should. But, sure. Um, so, yeah, I, we went into September, and he'd actually shown up on him. And he was, I knew he was up there in the upper, probably, the, I knew he'd break 190. Mm. You know, and he showed up, and it was like, this is this is fantastic deer but he was he's a four and a half year old deer at this point in time and i'm um i don't typically hunt a deer unless he's five and a half i've just uh just how i've kind of taken the mindset and approach of the when i'm working on farms and kind of setting farms up and just how i hunt um i believe you know a four and a half to five and a half still has a opportunity for a decent jump so i I leave him alone, but we knew we had this nice pushing 200 inch four and a half year old deer sure. showing up. So it's like, okay, if this guy, uh, this guy stays uh, frequenting around here, how do we keep this one quiet? You know, like right, right. <laughs> so, and then, so he, and then he actually disappeared again, um, in September. And I think it was, we went the whole first, the end of September, the whole first half of October, middle of October. And, it was like a week before I shot him that he showed back up on camera. And at this point in time, I still had really not put any effort into uh, hunting at all. Um, I think some of the guys that I hunt with, they had hunted a couple times. But none of us had really made a real valid effort into it. So the farm was pretty low stress still at this point in time like there wasn't hardly anything going on with it and he started frequenting back and there there's an area on on the farm that i knew if i was going to find him he'd probably be there Mm. it's kind of a uh, look area for most parts of it so i kind of something just kind of gave me an inkling to go link to look over there and i ended up um the first night i went to go f- try to see if i could find him with spot and scope i found him and then it was kind of the chess match began so <laughs> <laughs> uh i hunted him i think oh, you and i had actually talked i'd hunted him i knew where he was knew the lay of the land of everything behind him and i just kind of had a pretty good idea i thought well he's either gonna go here or there so i set up there and he went here um mm. night number one <laughs> and then uh, i think it <laughs> yep yep and it was, it was actually something i watched him do it so i was able to gather some intel off of him oh that's good. um kind of see where he went and how he uh mature deer kind of do certain i don't want to say mature deer he's four and a half but when you get when a deer hits four and a half, a three and a half year old acts completely different. A four and a half year old and a five and a half year old acts completely different. You know, so you kind of start picking up on as they get a little older, they start doing just some things to, I would say, 
survive, <laughs> preserve a yeah. little different. They, they use their nose a little differently and use their eyes a little differently. So I was able to watch how he moved about the farm and kind of gain more intel off them. You know, I didn't have cameras, actually, but I knew I had a stand in there. So when the conditions were right, I think it was two days later, two or three days later, um, I had the right wind that I wanted and knew that he was – um, I'd left him alone for you know, probably as long as nobody else had come in and bumped him that he'd probably stay right there and went in there two, three days later and was, uh, extremely fortunate. I saw the Doe family group that he was hanging out with, that they had their beds and I'd snuck in the backside of them, um, basically underneath them and kind of came in on the bottom side of where they were going to be heading that evening. And set myself up in the transition funnel if you were to call it that and just right off the uh, end of it on the downwind side and they started to kind of hook into the food and i was able and that was that was what about ruined the whole thing i mentioned that doe was they all started to hook into the food and then she started to go the other way where i was set up kind of off the downwind corner where <laughs> they shouldn't be going so that was yeah. that was my plan kind of started to change right then and there, but like, uh, yeah, I was able to follow up with, uh, with a shot on them and find them the next day. Man. Yeah. What a, what an awesome story. Like the fact that you had that kind of history with such a unique buck and had the shed. Now, did, did the shed have velvet on it when your buddy found that? No. So that was, uh, that was, and that kind of goes back into the weird thing. So when he shed his antlers, they were, I mean, just regular antlers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And then when he, uh, when I saw him, when we got trail camera pictures end of October and we noticed he was still in velvet, I was, uh, that was kind of then I was like, okay, this deer obviously still has something has not either recovered from any sickness or injury from last year. Mm-hmm. would be my assumption or he just has a genetic disorder of some sort um yeah you know and, you know i don't think it was testosterone related because he did still have testicles when we checked for those they were small present um mm. and i and by no means am i a, a deer scientist but uh i wouldn't I'd, I'd find it hard to believe that deer with that size of rack would have testosterone <laughs> Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, he needs that to grow that right. But, but yeah, Sure, but the weirdest thing about him, too, is his, his body was tiny. I mean, I, he was, I probably could have picked him up and thrown him over my shoulders had the guy really? had not gotten to him. He, yeah, he was not a big, he, I, he had the body of a probably a two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old really? doe. Really? I mean, wow. he, he was a small, small-bodied deer. It was, it was a weird deal. So, man it'd be really interesting to to send him in as a you know like a a test case or whatever for somebody who's a uh, deer biologist and and like an endocrinologist because i imagine it probably is some kind of hormone issue if his body size was smaller like maybe he was lacking like just regular growth hormones or or something like that you know but still was able to throw Mm -hmm. such a huge set of antlers you know just uh just a uh very very strange situation there but man uh, that that kind of adds to the legend of it did now were you guys like nervous about eating the meat off of him 
Um, so I kind of made the decision that I wasn't going to eat any meat off of them uh, to begin with when, you know, when I saw yeah, them. Yeah, who knows what's wrong we with them. We said we're going to. Sure. And it was actually the cat had actually gotten to him. They jumped him out of his bed. I hit him back um, in the intestine area. I just completely destroyed his intestines, basically. So it, it wasn't a matter when he, if he was going to die, it matter when. Um, it bumped him out of his bed and pretty much made ran him to his death from sure. what it appeared. Had had most all the meat pretty well spoken for already by the time yeah. I got to him. Well, you so, kind of almost in that case where you didn't feel safe feeding it to your family, you know, it's almost a better way for it, other than what it does to the hide, of course. But, but, um, sure, yep. yeah, you don't know, you know, it's the thing, it's like, man, if somebody brought in a sick cow or a sick hog uh, here i'm going to slaughter this and you can have burgers and chops out of it you probably be like uh no thanks <laughs> you know right. you just, you just... Velvet on my ears or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right it's just like you know you don't know what's going on it could be some massive infection somewhere you know i've seen or i i well no maybe i did see a video once where somebody uh, shot a, a buck and it had, no, I think it was a turkey. Somebody shot a turkey and that thing had gotten uh, spurred really bad, like right in the, right in the, you know, breast meat. And oh. it, it just leaked pus like crazy. And it's like, man, if I saw that, no way am I, you know, it's like you could get yourself seriously sick from that thing or something, you know? So you got to be careful with that, you know, when you're hunting some of these kind of freak animals that have these weird things going on. You never know, you know, what exactly it is, how healthy that meat, you know, is going to be. But also, you know, I had a friend who, uh, uh, his son, so Noel Gandy, his son shot this buck that they nicknamed Doofus because uh doofus had like a broken and dislocated lower jaw and his his lower jaw just kind of like shot off at like a 45 degree angle and his tongue then would just hang out of his mouth like a doofus they said you know just like yeah just his tongue would just hang there and it was it was all like nasty and hard they said after they killed the deer they hunted him for like two years and his son really wanted to shoot him so his son got him the second year he hunted him and and uh, they did actually end up eating doofus's meat because but they went to like a deer processor and they're like hey what do you think is this going to be safe to eat and he's like yeah i think you should be good and because for that you knew what it was it was just that mouth injury sure sure yeah yeah the deer was suffering though you know like like he was very underweight because eating was so difficult for him, and uh, you know his tongue. I think they said was all frostbitten on the on the end of it, and and uh, just just this like you know poor suffering thing. It's like yeah, you know, put it out of its misery. Sure, that, that can be the you know who knows what this buck that you shot was going through, and and uh, that's you know yeah I will say that was kind of the one the what if statement i guess i would say is you know he in all besides the velvet rack and all natural things he appeared to be a healthy deer he acted normal 
Um, he, I think he didn't, he was with the Doe family group. He didn't act like, well, I shot him November, I think it was November 6th. Yeah. Cause I'd shot, yeah, I'd shot two deer two years in a row on November 6th at that point. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, but he was acting, he didn't, any real activity, but if he was a four and a half year old and not in velvet, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have shot that deer. Um, but mm. at this point, at this point in time, it was just, it was a, a pretty up there deer, I guess to say, and score wise yeah. and in velvet, it was kind of, there was a few factors landed like, well, I'm probably not going to get this opportunity in yeah. life. So. Right. Yeah. Most people never get to shoot a 190 something class, you know, that's just not, it's not in the cards for most deer hunters. So I think it's awesome that you went ahead and, and, you know, released an arrow on him and, and I'm glad you found him. And now, so with the taxidermy, everyone's probably wondering, did you, uh, have him taxidermy him with, with velvet? Yeah, so he is at, uh, he's at my taxidermist now. I, I think it's quite a bit of different difference in process i know um, he's done several velvet deer before but as far as you know draining the blood out of the velvet or the antlers and uh the process of saving the velvet it's a little more involved so, oh yeah uh were the antlers get him back there were the antlers like soft still um they were they had hardened quite a bit but they still they still were soft. So I, I'd never really been around velvet antlers before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd found one dead deer, um, on the farm a couple of years prior in velvet, but I didn't really investigate his antlers very much, but they, yeah, they were still kind of soft. I mean, you could still squeeze them a little bit, but a little pliable. Um, it was, yeah. 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 I, one time I saw a dead buck on the road, um, like, uh, probably i don't know late august something like that and he was in he was in velvet and i was like i gotta know what that feels like so i spun my (laughs) car around it was on like a it was on like a four lane and i went and took a uh you know median turn and went back and parked by this buck and just got out just so i could feel his antlers (laughs) just i just had to know i wondered what what were they like and uh was the velvet long yeah, it was, you know, it was fuzzy, if I remember correctly. I got, I you know, I don't really remember what it felt like because it was, I was kind of in a hurry, you know, because people were like, what is this guy doing, you know? And, and, uh, uh, but I think the, the hair, I think it was pretty long. And I think I have a picture of the buck somewhere. I think I, I took a picture and sent to my, one of my buddies. But yeah, it was, it was That's- unique. That was what I did not expect when this happened, I guess. You know, I, like, again, I'm, I was ignorant to you know, velvet deer, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I assumed, I assumed velvet was kind of like, you know, just a short, you know, like rug. Yeah, right. Like, height, almost like you know, a this, sandpaper or something. Yeah, and then I got up to him, and he had, like, the velvet, like, near the base of the antler, was, like, three inches long. I mean, it was like, Whoa. Hair. Yeah, I, never, I didn't <laughs> yeah. know that. Wow. Yeah. That's it was, crazy. Some of it. Some of the areas are probably two and a half, three inches long. Like, Holy cow. So, man, that is, that is such a wild deer. Um, but Hey, it's a story that'll, that'll stand the test of time. That's for sure. It'll be an awesome thing uh, to have on your wall. 
I'm going to have to have a talk with the wife and see where she's going to let him go because we have an even, <laughs> we have like even spacing of beer up there right now. And I, of course I can't take any of them down. So I have to just, uh, Oh no. Yeah. 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 You no, might just have to build, build onto your house, you know, have like well, a trophy I room. <laughs> I think we'll just start with a, with a, something not being, everything not being in line for at least another, until this fall. Yeah, now you have to go shoot another one this year because you know I can't have it uneven on the walls. Uh, Yo, we'll man, see, I'm seeing all uh, kinds of good excuses here, buddy. <laughs> I know, I know. But well, hey, the other thing we need to talk about before we wrap this one up, and we're approaching the one hour mark here, but you know, being a wildlife and habitat manager, you look at the land, you know, differently than ninety five percent of hunters i would say um i keep i I, i'm a big fan of uh, the meat eater podcast i always listen every week and i get to listen to a lot of podcasts while i'm working which i really enjoy and one thing that steven ranella on the meteor podcast he's the host of course he has said that he's repeated this thing so many times through the years and it's a great it's a great quote and he 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 credits it to uh pat durkin who's a a great uh, outdoor writer has been for a long time. I always enjoy his articles, but he said that Pat Durkin did this like um, a profile of the best, you know, like big buck hunters. And he like interviewed them, hung out with them, you know, got to know them or whatever. And what he found out after getting to know all these big buck hunters was that most of them, had no idea what species of tree they were putting their tree stand in. <laughs> so in other words, they, they weren't like they were consumed with deer hunting. They were very good at deer hunting. They couldn't care less about all the other natural world details, you know, like it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't part of the equation for them, but guys like yourself, that's a huge part of it. You're, you're, working you know you're working the earth you're you're planting trees you're cutting trees you're setting up timber stand improvement plans and then you're executing timber stand improvement plans you're uh planting native grasses and flowers you're you're working the land and you're really concerned with how the whole network goes together of all these aspects and you know you said you've been doing this now for seven years how has your like philosophy on land management, wildlife management, how has that evolved over these seven years for you? Like how do you, how do you view things now versus how you viewed things, you know, when you first got started? Oh man, I, you know, I was actually kind of thinking about this the other day. Um, you know, seven, eight years ago, I was more or less a, well, uh, the guys on TV say you need to put this through plot here <laughs> to get the yeah. deer here. And, um, man, I'll tell you, I've, I've screwed up and made more mistakes when it comes to planting food plots for habitat or trying to hunt with animals and more than more. I've probably made more than nobody, and I've tried to keep that quiet. I don't like to own my mistakes sometimes but um the, the biggest thing man i'd say that what really when my perspective on 
conservation really started to change for me was I just kind of, I started taking a different appreciation for what stewardship is and conservation and our, I didn't, I quit viewing hunting as a right and I started viewing conservation and land management as I started viewing hunting more as a privilege and conservation and land management more as something, you know, as a right. So, you know, I've been for whatever reason got with a, a drive to, you know, when I, when I'm looking at a property, I'm trying to think what can I do to this property, you know, today to make it better or not just tomorrow, and we all leave here and we pass this land over to the next generation. You know, when my mm. when my kids take over, you know, hopefully my farm that I don't even own yet, but hopefully I own someday. You know, what what are the things that I can do now so you know they they're further down along through the path than what I am currently. You know, so I I take a little bit more of a long term I think look at it than what um, I don't want to say what some people do, but I I, I just uh. Yeah, I try to think, I guess, look at things where we're going to be 10, 15 years from now by doing some of these things rather than, you know, what are we, what are we doing this hunting season? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly how things, you know, how I've learned too, how things should be done and how they should be viewed. But, you know, that can be a hard sell too, you know, if you got, if you got a client that you're working with that's say, you know, in his mid to late sixties and- Yep. And he's yep. looking at, he's looking at, um, you know, man, I finally bought this farm. I want to trick it out. You know, there's going to be a lot of temptation there to, you know, take the shortcuts. Right. And, and I'm not saying that that's even wrong in that case. You know, I, you know, I work for a company called Hoxie native seeds, <laughs> you know, we, we love and preach that native plantings are really you know far and away the should what should be the only option however i'm willing to give some latitude and something that that you asked on the podcast that we interviewed you with for for uh, the prairie farm podcast the, the hoxie sponsored podcast um that you said was, or that you asked us, it was like, Hey, if there was an invasive species that you would be somewhat okay with, what would it be? And I thought, I've, I've thought about that, man, at, at least once a week. Um, since, since you asked that, I bet it's probably more like three to five times a week. I think of that. And it was, it was such a great question. And, um, you know, that can definitely be part of it. I think sometimes like in the, the example of the 65 year old, however, you used a great quote when you were planting your 3,200 trees this last weekend. It's one that I would say probably most listeners have heard somewhere or seen somewhere, you know, it's often in putting memes and stuff like that on social media, but it's basically along the lines of, you know, the, the wisdom and generosity of a man who is willing to plant trees that he will never live long enough to enjoy their shade. And, um, you know, that's gotta be part of it too. When you're the 65 year old landowner, kind of like what you said, Hey, someday I hope to own my own farm. And when I do, I want it to be as good as it can be for my kids when they 
are old enough to enjoy it and it's their turn and their legacy, you know, that they're working on. And, and, uh, I, I think that that is one of the greatest things a landowner can do is to carry that perspective into it. So I think, you know, that there's, there's a lot of truth to what you said and I, I hope most people take it that way. Now, you know, as we kind of finish this up, I think what would be, and we've had land manager uh, topics on the podcast before. Uh, we've had Chase Burns on here, um, but and so people kind of know some of like the normal pitfalls that people fall into. But I thought I might rapid fire you just a few questions you can give a quick answer to um, here that should help people. So let's uh, go ahead and uh, start off with this one. As long as you're good with that, you good with some rapid fire? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, so so if somebody has a property and they maybe they've owned it for a while, maybe they just bought it, doesn't matter. They've never done any habitat management to it at all. Um, they start watching TV and they start hearing the words food plot, food plot, food plot, food plot over and over and over again. Is the first thing that people should do, should they go ahead and just start doing food plotting? Uh, no. No, not at all. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a wrongly placed food plot that may be the best planted food plot you've ever planted in your life can be the absolute worst detrimental thing to your farm. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's that's good to know. Just because it could pull deer in the wrong direction or make oh, it unhuntable? Mean, yeah, so many different variables with that. You know, um, what, you know access, access. Uh, Mm, neighboring yeah. food sources what's going on in the neighborhood what's your what's your food density on your farm like now what's your holding capacity like on the farm for deer i mean when you know and you know i was even asked about my philosophy on how that's changed from seven years ago um that's a prime example right there is you know i used to think you could just shove a an acre food plot and any every nook and cranny game the more mm. food the better and uh I, I can tell you, but going back to the thing, I've screwed enough things up. I can tell you, I figured out the hard way that that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's good insight there. Okay. Well, here's the other one you always hear people talk about. In fact, I had a friend tell me that I should consider doing this, um, and and he hadn't even seen my property where I hunt. He just, he, I think it's because he's seen it on TV. He said, "Hey, you should consider putting in a watering hole near where you hunt." You know, you mm -hmm. see people bury a kiddie pool or something like that or whatever they end up doing. They put the heavy tarp down or whatever. Are water holes another thing that people should just jump right into? Like, is that is that a good idea right off the bat, putting a shared watering hole? Man, I'm going to be honest. I don't have an opinion on this one yet. I did, the, I did a first one for my, a client last year, and then we uh, – we did one on the farm that we hunt as well last year. So I'm kind of a firm believer that just because there's a lot of pros to something, we also have to be aware of what the consequences are. And mm -hmm. some of those consequences we may not see for a couple of years. So I know there's a lot of these water holes going in. I'm don't, I'm not by any means saying that they're a bad thing, but I also question, um, you know, especially as we look at EHD and some several different other issues, yeah. And I have no idea. I have no knowledge of, of any of that. You know, it's just something that's like, well, 
there has to be something bad about it. You know, yeah, the, yeah there's always a the drawback. Question. There's there's not there's nothing perfect. Right, exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's a good so, point. I, I I by no means discourage them. Um I think uh the little bit, you know, I tell you the little bit we've seen the the camera activity on it. Um we put ours um in a timber near some bedding. Um, kind of a nice little turkey area on a ridge that we cleared off. And uh, we've seen a lot of an uptick in activity in it, but I'm not, we're not far enough along yet to see any of the downfalls yet. But I can... Sure. Oh, that's good. That's good insight. So here's another food plot question I have for you. You know, so mo- our state is pretty much a giant food plot. You know, we got these huge ag fields everywhere. Deer love munching on that grain litter out in the fields during the winter. And, uh, so then people start talking about food plotting and it's kind of like, well, you know, is it even necessary? Does, does uh variety help? In fact, I, I, I've got a friend who uses the, he uses this phrase. He says, putting in a food plot in ag country is like bringing s- sand to the beach. And, uh, <laughs> It's like I think he's got I think he's got a point in there somewhere, uh, but like as far as sand from a different beach, <laughs> that's right. There you go. Yeah. So is, does that help if you bring sand from a different beach? If you bring in like a different crop, like say a brassicas mix, or you know a uh, uh, maybe like a, a different grain, like a sorghum or something like that, does that seem to uh, you know really help? Or have you, like, as you've observed food plots through your years, have you been like, yeah, I definitely see the deer hitting them, but it's not like, you know, the clockwork predictability that you would expect because deer are also so occupied by just going out to the picked cornfield. Sure, yeah. So that's been one thing, you know, I've had to, over the years, I've learned different things, how to sit back and not just look at the, the property that I'm working on so also I got to you know kind of know what's going on in the area so if there's on three sides of this property that I'm putting food plots on is ag production and to one of the farmers is really gets his crops out really early and you know the second farmer he gets his crops out you know at an okay time you know decent time he gets them out it's done and then the you know, third farmer and this isn't a big farmer at all um just and then the third third farmer you know he might have his crops out before the snow flies sometimes just depends on what he's got going on you know mm-hmm. so if, if that's the case you know you definitely just have to play you know look at look at what all you know what all cards you're playing with um i i will say i am a proponent of balance food diversity on a farm if mm. the acres are available um, say for example, we've got a, I'll just say in realistic terms, we have an 80 acre property and we're going to put five to six acres of that will be in food plots. Okay. Um, I would probably, you know, I'd, I'd like to encourage, you know, if, if we have to, or say the, you wanted to put two to three acres of in as a late season plot that's fine um i also like to try to mix in uh just whether we're you know trying to get those greens in you know i like to in easy terms create salad bars before sure just hit those trends hit the transition areas those transition food plots um 
and you know, there's depending on the farm there's times we set farms up to where you know we're not even we may have three acres of corn or beans but we're not even hunting we're hunting that half that half acre uh, winter wheat plot that's 200 yards from the corner beans yeah. um you know it's just kind of dependent on how the farm sets up but i i am a believer that having a good diversity out there within your farm if you're setting up specifically for you know especially whitetail hunting um, having something that's going to feed their nutritional needs throughout the year. Um, it, it doesn't do you any good if you say we're going to put five acres of food plots in and we're just going to put five acres of standing beans in and that's that. And they may not need those, just that five acres of beans throughout the year. Yeah. All of a sudden you're sitting there and it's a mild winter and you're like, where are all the deer at? <laughs> Cause I've done that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you start figuring out some other things, but you know, well, maybe there, maybe the, that, that clover field and the next farm over, we've got a mild winter and, uh, that clover's hitting a regrowth. You know, that guy, that farmer's got 20 acres of clover over there that's hitting a regrowth, you know, where if we would have had uh, an acre and a half, two acres of clover on the farm, maybe we'd be holding those deer. Right. Um, you know, or having some winter wheat and some cereal grains or whether we turn, there's, I mean, there's so many different factors, but yes, I try not to put all my eggs in one basket. Oh, that's, that's good. That's really good advice. Excellent advice there. Okay. So, so we've, pretty much uh talked about the food thing I, i'd say enough for doing rapid rapid fire so next thing i want to go to is um timber stand management so most people are going to feel like cutting any tree is a step backwards you know um then i think a lot of people as as this as the importance of TSI work, timber stand improvement work was, you know, preached like five years ago. I'd I'd say I heard it all the time on different habitat pod management podcasts. I think people started to get on board, you know, uh, they see guys like Jeff Sturgis doing it and they see, uh, um, you know, uh, or they listen to things from the Mississippi state university deer lab and, and, um, you know, guys like Bill Winky or Don Higgins, you know, they start getting people, people are willing to maybe cut some trees, but then this, along with that came this idea of hinge cutting. Is there such a thing as too much hinge cutting? And I'm not talking like you're clear cutting a whole forest into hinge cuts, <laughs> but, but, but like, I mean, have you seen where somebody is just, you know, they, they maybe did a good job of getting some of those low value trees, down as a hinge cut but because they did so much hinge cutting that it almost made the timber impassable is that like a is that a problem or would you say that nope if you're gonna cut low value trees your best bet is to hinge cut them because of the habitat value that it adds a little a little bit of both um the the biggest caveat there's a kicker to that is you know every just every property is so different compared Mm -hmm. to um, you know, I, I wish when we, when I wish in all things conservation and hunting that when we were able to, uh, discuss these, that there's a, a blanket answer out there that said yes or no, <laughs> right, yeah. most all things, you know, um, I, I do think you can do too much hinge cutting. I am, I've taken, and not saying my way is right. Um, but when I do it, I do a little more 
uh, discrete approach, I guess, to it and mm. increment it in small, small doses over the course of uh, maybe a couple seasons. Um, I, I don't know. That's just kind of how I, how I've done things. I haven't gone in and just said, "Oh, we're gonna, you know, take out this half acre or acre. You know, this, we're gonna hinge cut all this throughout here." I guess I'd do a little more smaller bites off. Um, sure. I don't know if that's right. Still figuring it out along the way, but uh, I like to just kind of increase small areas of bedding at a time and just kind of keep building that naturally throughout there. Try try not to make it look so much uh, man made in one day. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good that's a good way to say it. You know, I <laughs> I have gotten that vibe sometimes. You like walk into it you know, a place or you usually you see somebody make a post or something. And you're like, man, I get it. But that looks like that doesn't look natural anymore. That's part of why we go hunting right. well, is to escape into nature. A, yeah. And that, but that's also the kind of the difficult thing with TSI work. When I say, you know, there's not a blanket, yes or no, because there is some instances, you know, where you go into some timber settings and maybe we do need to, clear cut a quarter or a half acre within that timber you know maybe there is you know a lot more value to be gained by doing this than whatnot i mean it's and that's the biggest problem is it's ugly at first you know when you make drastic changes like that it's going to take time to uh those edges and wounds to smooth back over yeah. from what we're used to seeing the landscape look like. And we also have to, you know, make note of, you know, that's a little bit of what wildlife are going to think a little bit, mm, but they're going to uh, get acclimated to it a lot quicker than what we will. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good in point. In most sense. That's a great point. Okay. So as we end this one up and I have, you know, I'd love to ask you about some prescribed burning stuff and I'd love to ask you uh, about like building up, south-facing slopes and how to how to like target the right property to buy but i think we're gonna have to have another podcast at some point ryan and i'm gonna ask you all these so (laughs) (laughs) so uh um the one i want to finish on here is is kind of a generic question but it's like if you see on a like regular basis a common mistake made by landowners that want to manage for for better hunting what mistake would that be? It's unintentional, but I would say trying to take the easy, convenient access into properties. Um, you know, I know we all we all love the conveniences of our uh, some of the equipment that we've been blessed with, with the nice four wheelers and the yeah. side by sides, um, or whether however it may be that we go about managing our property. You know, but I've uh, um, I won't name names or scenarios, but I'll just say, you know, if we, if we want to, if our goal is to consistently kill big deer on a property, um, doing things to increase the stress levels on properties, um, negligence of access, uh, would probably be the first place I would start. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's, a you good know, point. there's, you know, times. Yeah, where we just, you know, go blowing through on uh, pretty much announcing to the world that we're here on some farms and, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, riding 
four wheelers right up to within you know blinds or putting blinds <laughs> right in the direct path of bed to food i mean you know yep. like literally sometimes on top on top of the trails you know uh, there's, a, there's sometimes you know just that just a degree of pivoting one way or the other um just kind of changing our approach on some things on how we access our properties because you know we're i think it's something you know we haven't done intentionally we're just you know we're so excited to, to get to go hunting to get pretty to, to get there let's go do it that and i'm guilty of this myself probably 10 times more than anybody else in years past that we forget that man i just i was so excited to do all this and get here that i didn't really think about how i got here <laughs> right yeah well that's a great point if, if that makes if that makes sense so. <clears throat> i think it makes a ton of sense and this is starting to turn into like a, a meteor episode here because I keep quoting them. So Doug, Doug Dern was the one that said the bring sand to the beach thing, which I think is a great line. But uh, sure. uh, another thing that I heard Stephen Ranella say at one point, which goes right in line with what you just said, is he referred to himself as a chronic walker. And yep. uh, I like that. I like that idea of being a chronic walker. And now I pretty much walk for a living. I'm always walking around, whether it's in the shop cleaning seed or out in the field uh, digging up weeds or, you know, just there's a million different reasons why I have to walk every day a lot. And I I have grown to really enjoy that aspect of of becoming a better hunter, you know, where I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to walk there. There's not really, at this point in the season, I... I you know, am so much more likely to spook something or alert the deer that I'm in the area by driving, you know, halfway there and parking just so I don't have to walk, man, I'm just going to walk it. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I've, I've had so much more success since I started doing that. Cause I used to take a four wheeler in and, and, or drive my truck in as far as I could get away with. Now, granted, you know, once the harvest happens on my farm and so meaning with all that standing corn gone, the amount of available, you know, like habitat for deer to feel comfortable goes down by like 90%. Well, yeah, now I can get away Mm -hmm. with with driving to different areas on the farm sure, and not spooking anything. But I think that that is just great advice. Look for, look for ways to access your property of you know effectively not yeah, just efficiently there's a quote that uh there's i know we were kind of joking about how we both don't like quoting quotes but there's one that i think that how i kind of relate when i look at access for property and it relates to you know opportunity you know opportunity slides in the back door and stands in the corner and hopes not to be noticed and i would say mm. that's a good way to look at when you're trying to access the property is you know how can we how can we just slide in the back door and be quiet and yeah, hopefully like we're that. not noticed. Hopefully we're not noticed. Yeah, I I I like that a lot. That's a that's a great quote. Yeah, that's that's the exact attitude to have. Have that minimally invasive approach and and making those right decisions. Well, this is far from an exhaustive list of everything you need to do to uh, upgrade your property. I strongly suggest that uh, if you have some questions, you reach out to Ryan. Um, you can get him through. Uh, Instagram and Facebook. It's just at Bryson Wildlife and Habitat Management, right? 
Uh, just at Bryson Wildlife on Facebook is uh, okay. where I do most of the social media business interaction. But do do have a business Instagram page at all made up. Uh, not the most present on the on sure. site. Well, yeah, and but hey, if you need to get in contact, it'll work, I'm sure. But do understand that Ryan doesn't do this stuff for free. He's he's put in. <laughs> he's gone through the school of hard knocks. So. You know, expect a consultation fee if you uh, give them a call, but it would be well worth it. Don't just jump blindly into your habitat management plans. You need to be educated on making wise decisions. So talking to someone like Ryan would be the smartest thing. And, you know, we talk about saving time with this a little bit. You know, it takes a while for trees to grow. It takes a while for dialing in your food plots if you're going to do that right. It takes a while to get a good bedding area established. So if you can gain time back some way, you should take that opportunity. And one of the best ways to do that is to consult somebody like, like Ryan and, and, you know, see what his opinion is and, and maybe even pay him to come out and, uh, you know, tour your farm with you if he's got the time to do so, because that's when you're going to learn how to make the right choices on your property. But please, uh, if you're listening to this, check out the show notes, you'll find those links there. Um, and uh, you can get in touch with Ryan that way. Uh, also, we have to re- uh, remind you that this, and I don't have to, I want to remind you that this podcast is presented by Spartan Forge. I was just talking about Spartan Forge today with my coworker, Nicholas. Great program, excellent app. I use it every single day. There's, I, I really... I mean, maybe on occasion I'm not on there for a day, but then I'm on there the next day. I'm on it all the time, looking at the maps, um, marking stuff. I recently found out, I've mentioned in a previous podcast, that I can use it to uh, measure uh, acreages or, uh, you know, just area on the map in acres, which is super handy if you want to do some of the work that uh, Ryan's talking about. Um, You can also use the deer behavior prediction uh, uh, offerings that they have during uh, whitetail season. And that really helps you prioritize the best days to be hunting. So make sure you check out Spartan Forge. You can find a link for that in the show notes as well. So after you click on Ryan's link, go and click on Spartan Forge, or you can go to my link tree in my Instagram profile um, and uh, you can get to Spartan Forge that way. And then also don't forget about Alex over at East to West Hunts. Alex has been sponsoring the show for a long time. You can uh, go to him for any kind of hunting plan you want done as far as going out west or maybe you want to go far north, deep in the south, back to the east coast. Wherever it is you want to go, Alex will help you with the tag applications. He'll help you with knowing what gear you need, what kind of physical condition you need to be in before you go on this trip, and how to get into that physical condition. He'll also uh, um, you know, just help you with bouncing questions, and he'll give you waypoints, and he'll give you all the information you need to have a much better chance at, fulfill, or at filling those expensive tags that we all dream about and save up for and burn vacation time on. You want to get the most return on investment with that. You're going to want to talk to Alex and use the promo code first gen 10. You'll save yourself 10% off of that service. And you can roll that money back into getting a consultation from Ryan on your hunting property. But, uh, 
other than that, please uh, do reach out with any questions or comments. Love hearing from you guys. You can also uh, leave a review. A five-star review would be a wonderful uh, uh, show of appreciation to the show. We hope it's helpful for you. We try to make it that way. Try to make it fun and enjoyable for you to listen to. And so getting that feedback from you, critically important to me and everyone else that helps me with this podcast. We do it for you. You're the best part of it. Well, everybody, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Ryan, for jumping on. Everyone, thank you for listening in. And until next time, take care and take someone hunting.